All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, as you're turning there, just kind of bring us up to speed. We have been working our way through the seven trumpets, so the second wave of judgment that God unleashes uh, on the earth in the midst of the, the final seven-year period of tribulation. And, uh, and really, we were in that interlude period, so chapters 10 and 11, uh, where after the sixth trumpet, but before the seventh trumpet is blown, uh, there, there is kind of this, this other material given that gives us uh, insight into what's, what's going on, so just filling in other details. So we worked our way through that, and last week we were looking then at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 11. And so, th- th- this is a strange part of the book of Revelation. That's a funny way to say it, right? This is the strange part of the book of Revelation. I know there's a lot of strange parts, but in terms of the timing, so just as another reminder, as we read through Revelation, I, I do believe it is fundamentally giving us chronological information. I think it's going from one event to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and I, I've said this all along, that there is language like, and I saw, and then, and after this. I, I don't know any other way to take that. I know there are others who do take that in a different way, but I find that to really just kind of read as chronological information. When, until it's not. Uh, until then, the text clearly breaks in in some way and diverts us from that kind of sequence of events. And this is definitely what's happening now, beginning in chapter 12. The end of chapter 11, we had this seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet, which then is to launch into the third and final wave of judgment. But that's not going to be detailed for us until chapter 16. So in the meantime, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, especially chapters 12 and 13, give us information, some of which doesn't have anything to do with the period of tribulation, more backstory, some of which does have to do with the period of tribulation, filling in some other details. And so my, my purpose, as I've shared all along, is not to, in, in this particular study of the end times, is not to unpack every single image, metaphor, um, phrase, question, but instead to kind of give a general overview of how I view the last things. How do these days unfold? So, what we're going to try and do tonight, I've never done this before. That's saying something, because I've been doing this for a long time, all right? I've never done this before. We're going to try and do, uh, we're going to plow through a big chunk here of the book of Revelation. And, and I've given you on your outline, I think, really brief, and it's, I think it's probably the back page of your outline, just kind of brief one-sentence descriptions of chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. Because what I want you to be able to do, we're not going to go through every little detail of these things. Again, we could definitely go down any number of paths in trying to unpack this. But I do want you to have some basic information. So when you go back to the book of Revelation, my hope is by the time this is done, you have a little bit more familiarity with this book that so many people are intimidated by, and you can go back to it and read it again. 
and at least not think, I am absolutely lost in the weeds here. Uh, I don't have any concept of what's being taught, what's being said at this point. All right, so before we jump into this, though, I, I want to see, are there any leftover questions from last week, the end of chapter 11, this transition now? So now, now it's almost like the book has given us another transition. We've had this interlude between the, trump, the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now we've got kind of an interlude between the seventh trumpet and the pouring out of the bold judgments. So any, any questions or too many questions to ask. Is that the other option? It's just like, where do I start? All right, well, let's jump into chapter 12 then. So again, these next four chapters are kind of filling us in on information. Chapters 12 and 13 uh, giving us some background. We get to 14 and 15, we're, we're really back in the heart of the tribulation, preparing us for the final judgment. Chapter 12, to give a summary of it, and it's there in your notes, you, you, could, you could almost describe this chapter as a brief history of God with His people and the persecution of Satan against them. It is the briefest history that you'll ever find of a group of people, all right? Because it's only going to be just these verses, and, and it's, it takes us from the time past, brings us then up into maybe even to today, or at least the time in between you know, that period and the tribulation, and then all into the tribulation. So let's, let's see if we can kind of get a grasp of what's going on here, beginning in verse 1, chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. It's a weird image, but this is an image of who? Israel, right? Yeah, I mean the reference here to the twelve stars is probably your biggest nod to that. Uh, the fact that she is clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, this is, this is language associated with with God's own glory, and, and really what it's a way of saying, it's a way of describing Israel as God's precious possession, glorious possession. Um, we, we, we know that the Old Testament regularly presents Israel as a woman and often uses that image. So that's who we're talking about here. But that, then it goes on, verse 2, then being with child... She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, immediately you're drawn to what when you hear that? What, what, what does that make you think of? So, so, what, so we have Israel and being with child ready to give birth. Okay, yeah, yeah, right, the standard answer, right? That immediately takes us to Jesus. I think eventually that's where we go here. I do think, though, verse 2 maybe has, um, is a little broader. So this is, this is Israel, and she is longing for the coming of the Messiah. That's kind of what verse 2 would be describing. With child, crying out in labor, and in pain to give birth. She's not yet given birth. She's about to give birth. And so I think this would be a simple summation, then, of the promises of the Old Testament. 
that, that the Messiah is going to come, but the Messiah has not yet come. So again, what, what's going on here, John is taking us way far away from the end times and going all the way back to the beginning, taking us all the way back to the beginning, really, of God with His people, promises made even to Abram, right, that from him would, he would be the father of a, of a mighty nations, and from him would be the one who would be a blessing to the nations. So much of the Old Testament has this language of the importance of giving birth to the, the child, both literally then and, and in, a, in a metaphorical kind of sense. All right, so that's what's being described. He's setting up for us Israel, longing to present to the world the Messiah. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. This is a reference to Satan. You say, well, pastor, how do you know this is a reference to Satan? Well, verse 9 of the same chapter. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Sometimes you don't need a Bible degree to get this, all right? Okay, sometimes you just have to read a little bit more, and you can find times where the Bible interprets the Bible. So this dragon, so this is not the Antichrist, right? This is, or or any other enemy. This is talking about Satan himself. That language there, you know, being a fiery dragon, seven heads, ten horns, that is language of power. It is language of, of, of authority of a sort. Um, and, and the idea that there are seven diadems on his heads, we've talked about this before, this kind of authority God grants to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, right? That he has this authority. All right, then it says, verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So again, we have in one fell swoop. We, we have this beginning of Israel, the promise of a Messiah, and then this rebellion that happens in heaven where a third of the angels fall with the devil himself. That's what this is referencing. So then verse 5, now, we, now we're up to the New Testament, all right? She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So that verse summarizes all of the New Testament. I told you, this is really succinct, right? I mean, John is really focused here on the message that he's being given. So the child is born. This is a reference to the Messiah. Christ comes. Contained in all this is his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, the image, though, is, is not to be um, overlooked. Here we have the, the, the serpent, the, the dragon, ready to devour this child to be born, ready to then to destroy God's plan to bring the Messiah not only to his people, but then to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we know that he is unsuccessful in doing so, even, even in what he perhaps thinks was a success with the crucifixion, is, is a short-lived success three days later, right? and realizes perhaps um, with no small amount of anger and frustration that uh, things are way worse than they were even before, right? With the resurrection of Christ, now, now things are way out of His control. All right, so we have, we have this story being told, 
God's beginning work with His people, the, the, the attempts of the devil to, to, to prevent the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah comes, accomplishes His task, go, you know, is caught up to God in His throne. Then it says in verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she is where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Boy, there's all kinds of ways this is taken. And I'm not going to take the rest of the night to give all those options. You know, right, we talked about this. I, I believe this is now taking us to the very end. And God's special provision and protection given to His people at the end. That, that now, now John is taking us all the way to the final act of things. In fact, the last three and a half years, this time of tribulation, when the devil, the Antichrist, who we'll get to in a minute, will be at his fiercest and God's special provision to care then for his people. So, um, protection given then at the end of time for God's people so he can complete the, at least the extending the offer of the promises that he'd made to them going all the way back into the Old Testament. So what we'll do, we're going to read through this and then we'll see what questions there are. All right, so let's, let's just keep going. Verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now I will tell you there'll be a couple of options here for this. Some suggest this is giving more information about what was described in verse 4. In other words, the rebellion that happens in heaven. We're familiar with this story, right, from the, the, the Satan... Wanting to be like God, uh, wanting to take the throne of God. We know Isaiah speaks of this, and, and this then, of course, being thwarted by God, Satan is cast out, down to the earth, a third of the angels go with him, they turn into what we then call demons. So that's what's certainly described in verse 4, and some say verses 7, 8, and 9 are then giving more information. Others would suggest, no. This is describing a second attempt by Satan to thwart the plan of God in heaven. Now, here's the issue, because some say, well, he's cast down to earth, and that sounds like what he's doing now. The the problem being, being this, we do know, later in the Old Testament, Satan does still have access to heaven, right? He's called to a council where God points out Job to him. Remember this story, right? He's called to heaven and, and God, you know, Satan is there and God points out Job and says, look at, look at this faithful servant, which Satan says, of course he's faithful. You baby him. All right, that's my paraphrase, by the way. That's not actually what the text says. But I mean, that's the gist of it. Of course he's faithful to you. You make sure everything is just hunky-dory. And, and so, you know, we know that story. God then allows Satan to inflict the punishments on him that he ends up uh, inflicting on him. But what this suggests then is we, we recognize, though Satan was cast out from his position, he does have some access to go back into the presence of God 
In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll see here in just, a, in just a minute, verse 10. Well, let's just, we'll do it now. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. So here's what this suggests to me. This casting down is different than the first casting down. Because if, if, if this is referring to the first time he's cast down, to what degree was Satan able to accuse the brethren then? There, there, there weren't any brethren to accuse, all right, there, there, then. So, so that, that's not what this is referencing. I would contend what's happening right now, right now. Now, this may be intimidating. I don't mean for it to be. What is happening right now is that Satan goes before God to accuse the brethren. You, me, whoever else. That his, his purpose is to do much the same thing he did with Job, but maybe even in more aggressive ways. Spending time pointing out all the ways in which we have failed God, all the ways in which we have sinned. That, that is part of his name, by the way, being an accuser. This is, this is what he does. He's a deceiver and he's an accuser. And because now this is saying he's cast down, here's what I believe happens. I believe at the very end, keeping in mind Revelation tells us stuff that happens on earth and it tells us stuff that happens in heaven. At some point in the midst of the tribulation, there is another attempt by Satan to go after the power and authority of God. He is thwarted and he is then now banished, shunned, forever, all right? Kicked out altogether, cast down to the earth without any access to God ever again. And so that's what's being described here. And so then it says in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives to death, to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. All right, so, so, those who are, who've gone on to glory, rejoice, because this presence is now removed forever. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. And this to me is the most interesting part of it all, because he knows that he has a short time. Yeah, this is always one of the interesting questions when we start talking about our theology of Satan. What does he know? When did he know it? <laughs> right? So what, what is his knowledge of these things, of the gospel? I mean, obviously he knows it now, but ahead of time. And what's his knowledge of, of what's, you know, what's coming? I mean, he knows the Bible, right? I would have every reason to believe that the devil has read the book of Revelation. All right? I'm pretty sure he knows everything that's in there. And so what this is saying is he understands these signs. He understands that his banishment then from heaven altogether is a sign. This is a short time, so what's he going to do? He's going to unleash then with even greater fury his own wrath. So you'll notice this interesting kind of parallel story going on. The wrath of God being poured out, the wrath of Satan being poured out. One is in judgment against the sins of the unbelieving world. The other is an attempt to inflict pain and hurt and grief on God's people. And really going after unbelievers too. I, I really, I, he probably is uh, now at this point just directing his, his ferocity at whoever he can devour. 
Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So I think verses 13 and 14 are filling out more what was said in verse 6. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what, you know, what this is suggesting to me is that here at the end, part of his, when he's cast down, he goes after the woman again. He goes after the, the nation of Israel once again, unable to have access to her. The language of the flood, uh, many have suggested this, this could be an imagery of warfare, right? That there's, he instigates warfare against Israel, uh, which then is thwarted, all right? thwarted by perhaps uh, an earthquake of some kind, thwarted by some other kind of natural disaster. And so the chapter ends by saying, so the dragon turns his uh, attention to the rest of the people of God. Now he'll make no distinction, Jew or Gentile, because it is very specific. It says, to those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is talking specifically about believers. He will turn his attention, trying to pour out his wrath on believers. So again, I, I've, I've labeled there in your notes, chapter 12, kind of this, this um, brief history of God with his people. And when I say history, I mean that which has already happened and that which is yet to come, but still is going to take place. And so this history of God with his people, Satan's hatred of God and his people, and his attempts to persecute them. So this, this is the reason for this chapter, by the way, I think is just to, give, just to fill out the story of what's going on. That there is this great cosmic, I call it struggle going on, though God never struggles against anybody, right? I mean, there's, it's not like this, this battle is in doubt it's not like, you know, God takes some shots and then rallies and is able then to defeat Satan. That This is not how this works. Satan is not a rival power to God because God has no rival power, right? There's, there's, there's no second. No one's second to God. Sometimes you'll hear that language, by the way, right? God's most powerful being in the universe and Satan is second. That is not the language to use because, again, God has no rival. There is no second. His sovereignty is absolute, and it is unbreakable and undefeatable. And so this passage, though, I think is painting this picture of this, this, this other aggression that is going on, going on toward the people of God has been going on throughout human history, continues now, and will continue, and has very specific um, uh, outworkings at the end of time. With, with a greater intensity at that point than has ever been. So, chapter 12. I did a whole chapter in 16 minutes, all right? Wow. Which hurts, my, hurts me later, right? When I, when I take then 
three sermons to do one verse, all right? Then you think, oh, I know he said he could do it. He know, I, we know he can do it. Uh, so why isn't he doing it now? All right. Questions then about chapter 12. I know that's a, that was a lot to just kind of walk our way through, but questions, comments, discussion. Dennis? Yes, I mean, that is, I do believe, yeah, I believe that is, at least that is an option here. Um, it is one of the aspects of the end times that, that I, I think is shrouded in a lot of mystery and certainly debate. Uh, but in this case, I do think there is still promises made to Israel that will be fulfilled in the end time. And I, and I take this to mean there will be a special provision given to them at the end, a protection from judgment to come. So yes, I am talking about Israel here. I, I am interpreting that way. Not everybody does, but I, that is, I am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they they, they still had access um, to to the heavenly realms in whatever form. You know, that's that is also I think really shrouded in mystery. Of course, open to a lot of debate. Probably if you're to read read literature. But yes, yes, I think that is what's saying. Did you have one more? Okay. Yes, yes. I, I think the reference here, yes, is to um, we are children of Abraham, um, a la Romans, Galatians, those arguments there about being of the seed of Abraham, true descendants of Abraham, if, if you will. So, I think I had, I saw another hand first. Yeah, Cody. That's right. That's right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But that is, you're right, uh, Cody, bring up a, you know, kind of an important distinction here. And for sure, this probably shows up in the study of Revelation as much as anything. And this, um, this, that we really understand now the church to, some are really extreme, it's called replacement theology, that all this is just replaced. Um, But that, um, that, you know, now, now the language is the church. Uh, but it seems to me there's a lot of these promises that are very specific to ethnic Israel, as you say. Yes, yes, I do. I do believe that. That's right. I do believe there is aspects of the gospel work to Gentiles. Yes, it is described that way.
Oh, yeah. Yeah, we for sure even see that reflected in some of the conflict in the early church. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good. I think I saw a hand over here. Sherry, I'll get to you, but I thought I saw a hand over here. Yes, Debbie. I believe so. Yeah, you know, this is a really good question, and um, I don't know that I've got a really good answer other than God allows it. Uh, You say, Pastor, that's a cop-out. All right? I don't mind. That's why I've been able to do this job for 25 years. Uh, And... Uh, but but I do I, that is a good question. I, I think what we should appreciate is uh, that language of saying we can't be in God's presence with our sin. I perhaps would take that maybe a step further and and to more carefully articulate that as we cannot be in relationship with God as His sons and daughters um, with with our with our sin as it is. And that's, that's that kind of language. Um, whatever the case is, though, God does allow Satan, his angels, uh, access to him. And, and so how is that possible? Again, I, I, because God in his power and sovereignty allows it. So some might even make a distinction that there might be a distinction the way God relates to his human creation and the way God has related to his angelic creation as well, that we see two very different ways. Uh, you know, there, there, there's no sense in which these demons are thinking, well, maybe I should confess faith in Christ. You know, I mean, that's not happening, right? So there is a distinction in how God relates to these two parts of his creation. Michael? Yeah, I mean, it, it's clear to me that there, is, there has to be some kind of distinction there for this to quote the we are We can't be stand in the presence of God as human beings with unforgiven sin. It's just not going to happen. We would be obliterated. I mean, eternally obliterated. Unless the sin is forgiven, unless it's dealt with redemptively, even the Bible repeatedly speaks throughout the Old and New Testament, no one will stand before God, meaning those who are humans. No one will stand before God with unforgiven sin without it being dealt with very, very quickly with God's judgment. Now, I realize that the Christians stand before the Lord at the beam of the judgment seat of Christ. I understand that. But he's dealing with our works that we've done here on earth. But as far as the, as far as the judgment on sin, that's already been dealt with on the cross for us. Sure. That's been dealt with. And that's the only reason why we can even stand in his presence, because of the merit, finished work and the merit of Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to stand. And I, and I think you're right. I think there has to be some distinction between the angelic beings and human beings for them to have had at least some limited access off and on for throughout the generation, throughout the ages. I mean, because yeah. they, wouldn't have been able to, they wouldn't have been able to even stay there or have any kind of... Yeah, and, and if you really want to go down the rabbit hole for this thing, which you, you could potentially, um, you know, we're also talking about... <laughs> you all ready for this? Uh, we are also talking about beings who live in two different times and space. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be all, you know, 
sci-fi here, okay? I just mean we, we recognize that we, we live in the natural world, that which God has created and crafted, the globe we call the earth, and all the life associated with that. Angels and demons do not reside in, in this environment. They've been cast to the earth, but we, I, 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 I don't see them, right? I, I don't see them, but the, the Bible's very clear. They are alive and well and interact uh, with this earth, but they also exist in a in a different plane. I, I don't know any other way to say that. So these rules are perhaps sh- should be distinguished because of that, um, because the the, na- the nature of of life on there, <laughs> in that supernatural setting, we we don't have access to it. We don't know what that's like, um, and so there must be some means by which they are granted access. Whereas once we leave this plane of existence. <laughs> and go to the next, our relationship with God had better be right. Because then to be in His presence in that plane does require us to be holy. And the only way that that can be done is through Christ, right? Uh, And so that that perhaps is an important way to think of this distinction, you know, maybe as we flesh that out a little bit more. Debbie? Debbie? Yeah, you know, I have, I have only understood this, though I don't know that I can really go to chapter and verse and lay it out, that, that his, uh, Satan's ability to be in the presence of God is by invitation of some sort. Uh, you know, obviously God's not required to give, give him access to himself, but he does. Uh, and so... Um, and, and that it does say there is some ability for him to interact with the Father because he is the accuser of the brethren. And it says that he's doing it, is it this one? Yeah, uh, he's doing it day and night. But doing it day and night. Well, that was a lot of time. So, um, so there, is, there must be something there, but, it's only, but it only happens because God has allowed it. So did I see another hand? Sam? I was going to say day and night. Okay, okay, yeah. Michael? Okay, so the question being asked, especially since I've been teaching, you know, this pre-tribulation view um, of, of the rapture, how is it that there are believers? Now, I, I would add, in light of a pre-tribulation view, because those who have a post-tribulation view don't have a problem here, right? I mean, obviously, that's how they're there. Uh, but as, as, we have, as we have stated, with, with the rapture of the church does not also come an obliteration of the knowledge of the gospel. There's nothing that suggests people cannot get saved. In fact, I think they will. People will be saved during the tribulation. There, there, there's references to witnesses who will be preaching the gospel. Uh, so that's where they're coming from. Uh, I, I think they're getting saved during the tribulation uh, and then become marks. Right? They become targeted at that point. 
It's to say that again, Michael. No, no, not, no, I don't think it's just limited to that. That's right. No, I, I think they're, they're, but through their ministry, through, through their efforts, I think there will be men and women redeemed. And so that, that's who I think is in mind in verse 17. So, so. Welcome back, Jim. Where are the rest of the seven? You, you get double points. You get to get raptured before the rest of us, all right? You brought, brought me a book. Okay. You get extra prayers. All right. Good. Good. Yeah, Cody. That's right. The two, that's right. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. I think there's reason to believe that there will be quite a harvest uh, unto salvation. There's going to be a harvest unto judgment, actually, in a couple of chapters. But there will be a harvest unto, unto salvation. Uh, and, you know, we should also remember there's still, um, it, the, the rapture does not remove the Bibles either. Uh, and uh, the Word of God is still the power of God unto salvation. Uh, you know, it's suggested that there, there would be many um, who perhaps thought they were part of this deal. Uh, will realize they were not, uh, perhaps then taking seriously then the, the, the work and truth of the gospel. So, Dennis? To go back to the, uh, the being in front of God or being in heaven and sinless. So, when God has dealt with our sin, that sin is then put upon Christ. Yes. But God doesn't leave us there. That's the first thing. Second half is we are then given the righteousness of Christ. That's right. To stand in front of God, we must be righteous, not sinlessness. Yeah. Yes. Preach it, brother. All right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think what's helpful in that language is to distinguish between action and position, right? I mean, that's the theological categories. You know, we're not talking about actions that reflect sinlessness. We are in a position of right standing before God. And this that, you know, this course is what many would argue is the, is the thing that um, we should thank Martin Luther for so much, this, this doctrine of imputation, right, of him imputing, crediting to our account the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks, brings up our bank account, he sees the billions that are offered us in Jesus, right, uh, rather than the billions of debt we had incurred because of our sin. So, no, I think that's an important distinction. Yes, we, we are talking about something positional, something God does to us in whole in terms of taking us from old to, to new. Yeah, that's good. Good. 
All right, let's go on to chapter 13 as best we can. We, we've actually already addressed this chapter um, uh, probably three months ago, okay? Uh, we addressed this chapter when, I, when we were going through Matthew 24, 25, uh, kind of getting our, our um, direction from Jesus' teaching on the last days when he talks about the abomination of desolation. And we took some time and we looked at chapter 13 because chapter 13 now gives us more information uh, on some key figures. We've already been given Satan, right? Then we have the Antichrist, and then we have references to one who is called, often called the false prophet. And so this is filled out. So let's look in chapter 13. We might get to a bit of it. <clears throat> And then we'll, we'll finish it next week. All right, chapter 13. And let me go ahead and deal with one textual issue here, because otherwise this sounds really weird. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. You know, there is a te- there's what's called a textual variant. And, and I don't want to go into this. I've talked about this before, and I could certainly do another study on this. But the ways in which um, we have manuscripts... Um, that have slight variations in them. The best um, option here is that it says, then he stood on the sand of the sea. So it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily John himself. Um, it's it's, it's a, a reference here uh, to, one, to one of these others. It's not a big deal, but if you, if you have a different translation and it says he instead of I, that's why that's there. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So we know know these are two different beings, right? The dragon, though they're described in similar terms... We have a distinction made between the dragon and the beast. Dragon is Satan, and then I would contend the reference here to the beast is the reference to the Antichrist. Also, with great power and authority. So that language of having, you know, the the seven heads, the ten horns. Uh, Now, this is one of the the ways in which I don't don't get all um, into, like, identifying these... Ten horns with, say, the ten nations of Europe. That was a kind of a big thing at one point, you know, getting very specific. Uh, I remember back in the day, you know, especially when, when, when the European Union was really forming and, and everybody was saying, that, that's it, this is it, all right. Um, so, I, but I don't find that to be the case. I don't find that persuasive. Instead, I find the language of seven and ten being that of great power and authority, and that on his head's a blasphemous name. So this is very clearly describing one uh, who is going to uh, engage in activity and receive activity from others that is reserved for God himself. So, so to speak of this as blasphemy is to speak of specific ways in which uh, there's a direct conflict with the nature of God and His glory. And so it tells us then he's, the, the beast was like a, a leopard. Um, 
He had feet like a bear, his mouth like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Some have identified these animals with various ancient empires, uh, Greece and, uh, and Rome uh, and Persia, because these, these animals are known to be associated with these three empires. I think what this is suggesting is that the Antichrist will rise and will possess power and authority like that of these ancient empires, meaning a type of global domination. Granted, the Romans didn't control the entire world, but as far as they were concerned, they did, right? Same with the Greeks. I mean, that's just kind of how they viewed their world. You know, their world had this kind of square, all right? And they controlled all of it, so they ran the world. So, but this is saying, you know, that the Antichrist is going to kind of combine all of this power, power given to him by the dragon. And it says, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So I think during the time of tribulation, he will receive what at least appears to be a deadly wound and will then what appears to be resurrected. There some will say he absolutely is going to die and be resurrected. There are others who say, no, it just appears to be that way. I prefer the second one, just theologically speaking, uh, because that, that is the specific language uh, it looked as if this was the case. Um, and so, so they all, they all marveled at, at what seems to be his healing. And so verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So this is where the blasphemy comes in, by the way. That kind of language, could you not just see that being, who is like the Lord? And who is able to make war against the Lord? I mean, there are Psalms that say those very things. But rather than saying that about the Lord, they are saying it about the Antichrist. Because of this, um, well, because of this reproduction of of what what had happened to Christ. So he, he assumes this position of divinity. He's not actually divine, but that's what he's trying to to. to sit in, to sit in the seat of divinity and to be worshipped. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation." All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So we have this description here of the Antichrist, his rise to power and authority, his blasphemy. This is the abomination of desolation. He will establish himself as God to be worshipped, and then will be given power and authority to rule and reign for three and a half years, Uh, and will lead everyone astray. Isn't that an interesting reference, that he is able to make war with the saints 
and to overcome them. Now, don't, don't be taken aback by that. That doesn't mean he's able to take their salvation or win the war. It just means he's allowed to martyr them, all right? He's, he's allowed to, to take their lives. And it says, authority is given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship. So this is a mimicking uh, of the work of the gospel, right? This, this is a perversion of that work, of that mission. Uh, and rather than every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to faith in Christ, they're going to submit to the beast, the Antichrist. And again, at the very end, accept for those whose names have been written in the book of life. And there'll be more about this, by the way, because we'll get to the mark of the beast, all right? Uh, we'll have to get to that next week. Um, so, but before we do, I know it's right here at 7 o'clock, just as we come to the end of that. Any questions to wrap up? You may want to just hold on to them, and maybe next week we can have a chance to flesh those out as we finish up chapter 13. I'd encourage you maybe to read ahead, all right? Read ahead, 13, 14, and 15, if you get a chance to. Um, if you tear yourself away from basketball or whatever may be your thing, all right, this time of year, um, just uh, take an opportunity to, to read some of these chapters. Because especially when you, when you get into chapters, to me, chapters 14 and 15, 14 in particular, just, just is um, intimidating. And uh, this, this language, and maybe it's because, you know, we are so familiar with the language of the grapes of wrath. But if you ever wonder where that comes from, all right, it comes from chapter 14. Not, not only a reference then in the Steinbeck book, but of course the Battle Hymn of the Republic uh, referencing that language as well. So you'll find that in chapter 14. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We've been blessed to be together, brothers and sisters in Christ and sons and daughters uh, belonging to you, belonging to you because of what you have done for us in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for that good work of not only saving us, but granting to us righteousness that does not belong to us, given as an act of grace, so that we might, in fact, be right with you. We thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for its promises given to us. We thank you for the assurance that comes to us that even though there may be different ways of viewing some of these elements of the end, we can be confident that you, in your sovereignty, are bringing human history to your designed end. And we are grateful for that, Father. Now, may we live in faith today, since these events have not happened today. And if we wake up tomorrow and we are still here, may we then recognize the mission that has been given to us, and that is to make disciples of all nations, to be a people who reflect your glory and the love of Christ. And so use us this week as you see fit and the roles you've assigned to us, then all that we do, we might be faithful to you and bring glory to your great name. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.